sufficient to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Hebrew scripture reading today is from Exodus 33, 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring, up, do not bring this up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Gospel reading this morning is from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Heredians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. May the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. This is quite a puzzling gospel passage. It's a puzzling passage that I've been long fascinated with for some reason or another. You know, some passages just get under your skin and bother you for a while, and they just don't stop pestering you. And just when you think you've made your peace with them, they come back bigger and brighter than ever. It might just be me, but I doubt I'm the only one who wrestles with certain passages like that. You see, the first puzzling thing about this passage is what in the world the Herodians and the Pharisees are doing hanging out together. The Herodians were associated with Herod, who was not a popular guy with the Jewish community. He was called the king of the Jewish people, but he was really just a Roman pawn. He was a sellout, and that did not make him very popular. Whereas the Pharisees were the most Jewish Jews in town at that time. They were the really studied, knowing everything about everything, religious guys. They wanted the Herodians to come clean and to get their acts together. And yet we see the Pharisees and their disciples, their students, the Pharisees in training, pairing up with these Herodians in this kind of gotcha moment. Then they ask Jesus this really weird, seemingly random question about should we pay taxes or not? And of course, this is meant to be a trap. The Pharisees are constantly trying to trap Jesus. If he says yes to this, it looks like he's supporting the Herodians and the Roman government, and he's going to lose street cred with the people he's ministering to. And the Roman government is corrupt, and it's unjust, and it stands against the things that Jesus is teaching and preaching. But... If he says no, he's going to anger the Herodians and the Roman government and look like he's encouraging people to ignore civil law and duty. So in true Jesus fashion, Jesus gives them a third answer. Jesus' answer of give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's has been interpreted quite a few different ways throughout the years. Some have said it means to keep church things on Sunday and other things on the rest of the week. But that doesn't jive with pretty much anything else that Jesus says throughout all of the four Gospels. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. So we can safely assume that Jesus is not telling us just to partition off a little piece of our life for God and give the rest to country or civil duties. Some have said it simply means that we have to pay our tithes and taxes. And while I agree that we certainly should be paying our tithes, and that generally speaking we should be paying our taxes, that seems like a pretty superficial reading when we know that Jesus is never just saying the easy thing. And what about people who are being taken advantage of by their government? as the Jewish people were being taken advantage of by the Romans, or people who live in a place where their taxes would be going to immoral or unjust systems or to genocide or some sort of other atrocity. I think that civil duty is important, and I know that our duty to the church is of the utmost 
importance, but I think we need to press further yet into this passage. I heard a great sermon once from the pastor at a church I used to work at, in which he argued that Jesus is reminding us here that our first allegiance is to God above and beyond any worldly or national allegiances. And I definitely agree with him on that one. If someone were to tell me I would have to denounce my faith to be a good American, I think that the obvious choice is to become a bad American. God gets my loyalty and allegiance before anything. But we can dig even deeper yet into this passage. What does that look like to truly put God first? It's the historical and the cultural context of this passage that really gives us the leverage we need to press further into what Jesus is saying here. You see, we hear a little bit in the Gospels about these money changers at the temple. They weren't always very honest folks, and so they're usually talked about in a negative light. The money changers were there because Roman coins were not legal by religious code to use in the temple. So just like you have to exchange your cash at the airport before traveling to a foreign country, those who were coming to the temple from afar and needed to purchase animals for sacrifice at the temple had to first exchange their Roman currency for something that was acceptable before they went into the temple. These Roman coins were illegal in the temple because on them was imprinted an image of Caesar, the Roman emperor. And it wasn't just the image that was the problem. Along with that image, there was an inscription calling Caesar the son of God. The Roman people were to see Caesar as a god. He was deified by the people. The Roman coins were literally a graven, engraved image of something that wasn't God, in this case Caesar, that was worshipped as if it were God. And that was idolatry, and that was strictly forbidden. It went against the very first of all of the commandments. But when Jesus asks these questioners to see a coin, without missing a beat, they pull out one of these Roman coins. I'd like to note that they are most definitely in the temple at this moment that this happens. Here they are in the temple, and a Pharisee, or perhaps one of his disciples, has a Roman coin right there to pull out of his pocket. Sure, he probably exchanged the amount that he needed to actually spend or use while he was in the temple, but he was still carting around this idolatrous Roman coin. That is some seriously bold hypocrisy right there. But of course, they don't see their own hypocrisy until Jesus calls them out on it. We never see ours either until it's called out. And even then, we try to defend ourselves. You see, we too tend to carve God's image onto things like money, like the coin that Jesus is handed, usually metaphorically, but no less pernicious. In fact, our money says, ironically, 
in God we trust. Even though financial anxiety is something nearly everyone suffers at some point in their life. We do things like saying God bless America in ways that deify our country rather than pray for it. Or we make it sound like we're the only truly Christian country, in spite of the fact that there are dozens of countries with more Christians per capita than we have. We carve or assign images of what we think God is like on our worship services and on our hymns and on our church buildings. And eventually, they stop becoming reminders of God and gateways to worship, and they start becoming idols. We carry them around in our pockets wherever we go, and we happily pull them out to show people who ask us about them without realizing what an affront that is to God. Last week, we read about the Israelite people building an idol to represent God because that is what they were used to. Everyone around them worshipped gods that were represented by idols. God got really angry with them, but then remembered the covenant that had been made between God and the people, and they were spared. A short while later, in today's Old Testament passage, when Moses begs to see God's glory, he's told that it would kill him. So God lets Moses see God's back, or a better translation of the Hebrew would probably be where God just was. This is interesting. God doesn't let Moses see all of God's glory because it would destroy him, but Moses is still allowed to see where God just was. The glory still lingers. Even if we aren't able to see God's face directly for some reason or another, we are still able to see where God has been, to see the imprint of God's glory on the things around us. We can see the imprint that God makes on the world rather than the world's imprint of God on some coin or other idol. There is a reason that these two narratives are put so close to one another in the book of Exodus, because they are both about God's image, about God's glory, about seeing God and experiencing God's presence. And we certainly can see and feel God's imprint on creation in some wonderful ways. In nature, in color, in wind. We hear it in music, in the smell and the taste of good food, in the sound of laughter, in the sunlight. And most importantly, we can see and feel and know God's imprint on the world through the one thing that scripture explicitly says is made in God's image. People. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. We are made in God's image. We are imprints of God on the world. That's what Jesus is telling us. Give God what God is due, the thing that bears God's image. 
ourselves. Not just our Sunday morning selves that sit in the pews, not just our heart or our soul or the abstract parts of us, not just the future us that goes to heaven someday down the line. Everything, our bodies, our minds, our worldviews, our politics, our priorities, our wills, our mouths, our hands, our feet, our future, our past, our now, our finances, our homes, our families, our calendars, our careers, our Sundays and our Mondays through Fridays and even our Saturdays, all of it. We are made to be image bearers of God, every last piece of us. That's astounding. There was this amazing pastor at Tim's grandparents' church for a few years before it had to close, and we had the great joy of leading music in the services there with him for a while. And some of you may have heard of this incredible saint because he's sort of Pittsburgh Presbytery legend, and it seems like everyone in Pittsburgh Presbytery has met this man. His name was George Lights. He passed away a year or two ago, and he left a big hole in the world. He was the sort of person who everyone wanted to be around because he just oozed God's presence. George would walk into the room and you just knew that Jesus was alive and moving in the world. People of all ages, all social statuses, all races, even all religious views were just drawn to George because he genuinely loved God and he genuinely loved his neighbor and there was not a bit of him that he did not trust God with. He fully lived into the fact that he was made in God's image, and there was not a person he ever encountered that he didn't see as bearing the image of God as well. When I think about being God's image bearers, George is the first person that comes to mind. What if we all were to see the people around us, all of them, as image bearers? What if we were to see ourselves all as image bearers? Can you imagine the impact, the momentum? What if instead of worrying about putting God's image on the things around us or trying to force God into our own boxes of what we think God should be like, we went around looking for the image of God in other people? What if instead of trying to figure out how much we owe God and how much we owe anything or anyone else, we just gave God everything and let the rest fall into place? If we just assume that if we give it all to God, including and especially our perceptions of ourselves and others, everything else will make sense. I think for starters, we'd have a great deal less conflict and violence and broken relationships in the world. It's pretty stinking hard to vilify a person when you look at them as God's image bearers. We probably all have far less issue with self-esteem as well. 
You can't look at yourself as unworthy when you remember that you bear God's image. And you can't look at yourself as more worthy than another when you remember that they do too. Sometimes we think that to glorify God, we have to make ourselves smaller and less than and beat up ourselves over our sin. But we don't have to be brought low to lift God up. In fact, when we are fully alive, when we are fully human, fully who we were made to be, living abundant life, living into the image of God that each of us bears, that is what brings God glory. Friends, let the emperor keep the useless, graven images. Let go of the idols and let the world that made them have them. We don't need them. We don't want them. They don't do us any good. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's.